Welcome back, everyone, to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. Once a month, we consider what God has been doing in the world of faith driven investing and the movements of the global markets. We spend time looking at the big moments and the opportunities to identify places for redemptive work in the world. Tune in now as our panel of guests help us push the conversation forward about faith, investment philosophy, and the frontiers where innovation is happening. Welcome to our special episode, Marks on the Market. Can we totally dethrone its power from our lives so that all of our work is devoted to God and God's ways? As Christians, I don't think you can blame it on some evil Hollywood agenda. I think we've abandoned the playing field. The spirit of David and the cracks of the walls and the schemes that we are all running. Is you've got to make sure that your identity is solidly rooted in who you are in Christ and not in having money. If we were to have a business, what would we do with the money? You can only sleep in one bed. Woke up terrified in the middle of the night. We're so my whole house was shaken. We have been put here on earth to create, not to mimic what might have happened historically. For me, as I pitch, I'm not looking just for the yes, I'm looking for my partners. But I tried Where my heart is most encouraged as a pastor is when I see generosity as the overflow of someone's intimacy with Jesus. And there's a lot of people who want to use their influence to change the world. So how do you actually do it? Investing can be complicated, but it doesn't need to be a burden. Stewardship of the resources that God has entrusted us with is full of responsibility, analysis, and yet it is also a unique opportunity for us all to come to know God's love for us more and His purposes in the world as we seek His wisdom. Here is a place to find other investors who seek the same answers you do and share their stories of seeking to know the best investor and giver of all time. Come for the podcast, stay for the community. Welcome to Faith Driven Investing. Hey everyone, all opinions expressed on this podcast, including the team and guests, are solely their opinions. Host and guests may maintain positions in the companies and securities discussed, and this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as specific investment advice for any individual or organization. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. This is John Coleman, and I am here welcoming two of my very good friends, uh, Jake Thompson and Ross Roggensack, to the podcast for the last Marks on the Market of the year. Marks on the Markets is our monthly commentary show where we talk about trends in markets. And I thought, who better to have on the show to cap the year, talk about what we've seen in 2023, talk about what we're doing for Christmas, uh, what we're looking forward to in the new year than Ross and Jake. Ross and Jake, thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, John. Yeah, indeed. Thanks, John. It's good to be with you both. Awesome. Jake is lying about that, incidentally, because I spent most last week with him, and I can almost guarantee you that he doesn't believe it's good to be with me right now. But nevertheless, for it's the great audience, to be with Ross, though. I'm enjoying <laughs> being with Ross already. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. Hey, just to start us off, and maybe I'll start with you, Ross. Um, what were the three most important trends that you saw in market this year in 2023? Well, the super obvious one is high quality U.S. tech you know, up over 50%. It sort of swamped everything else. But I think the other two that might go a little unnoticed 
We've had a flat bond market, which is unusual given what we had in 22. I think it's a little overshadowed by the tech market, but I think it's still, we're not out of the woods. And then I think lastly is just the war in Israel and Palestine really has not affected markets yet. And between that and the war in Ukraine, it just feels like that's always simmering in the background. And maybe it's affecting markets more than I think, but it sure feels like it's something we'll look back on and remember 2023 by that we're in the middle of these conflicts. Yeah, it is interesting to me that, you know, out of the gates, the war in Ukraine in particular had some impact, particularly as people had to divest of Russian assets and things like that out of the gates. People worried about oil and gas, for example, industries that were quite exposed to Russia or Ukraine. It does seem like there's a relatively muted impact in markets right now of the global instability in those two regions and of the potential for instability in other regions like Taiwan. I mean, obviously, all of us are deeply concerned about those things. It's having a huge human cost, their major political costs. But it is odd that it doesn't seem to be creating the same type of instability in markets. Any insights on why you think that's the case? Uh, I don't know. Just fatigue? I don't know. I certainly talked to my team the Monday after October 7th and really thought we were going to get a very difficult week. And I uh, just think markets have whistled past it. I think the, I don't want to get ahead of our conversation, but I think the anticipation of a Fed rate cut is just sort of the sugar that covers everything else that Wall Street just can't keep its eyes off of. So kind of like the anticipation for Christmas, right? Yeah, it does so seem like markets are optimistic that both the Ukraine war and the war in Israel and Palestine will stay regionally contained. It feels like out of the gates, the Ukraine-Russia war in particular seemed to threaten a real spillover to other things. I mean, people were legitimately worried about a war between NATO and Russia at that time. People, I think, were more worried initially about something in Taiwan. And that seems to have quieted a bit as people begin to be more confident that these will be regionally contained wars without global ramifications. Yeah, maybe the second one affected the first one. Maybe we just felt like we overreacted the first one. So this one we won't overreact to. I, I don't know, but I'm certainly baffled by it. Jake, what do you think? What were the three trends you saw this year that you thought impacted markets the most? Yeah, the first one that I'd call out related to what Ross was talking about is this anticipation that inflation was going to continue to fall, right? We saw steadiness in that. That translated to market sentiment. And having that be a consistent trend over the year has led to a lot of other positive impacts, I think. So that'd be the first one, just starting of that. But, but number two, and I'm a tech investor, so I'm in the VC side. And one thing that you saw is a resignation that the world's a little bit different, right? For the longest time, I think we were anchored that it's a 2021 world or soon returning to that. And for the first time, folks are, they've taken their lumps. There's been this consistency in current valuations. There's almost a default lean now, which we haven't seen in a very long time. So the zero interest rate environment is no longer the case. And that's having ramifications in the tech and private markets. Then I'd say the third one, it wouldn't be a podcast in 2023 without mentioning artificial intelligence. You know, yeah. the new wave of AI has transitioned from a parlor trick this time last year, right? I remember being at a Christmas party and showing people chat GPT and we were making poems about the host of the Christmas party and laughing about that. But over the year, it's really translated into operational value. There's a long way to go in that. I think that'll be one thing that we look back that wasn't just a, a short-term blip, but it will have true fundamental impacts on the economy 
and on the way that we do work and we do life going forward. And, and this will be the year where we started to see that take effect, I think, looking back. So I want to pause on that because one of the craziest stories of the year that we actually haven't covered in a Marks on the Markets because we haven't had one since then was what happened with Sam Altman and with OpenAI with the board. I mean, Jake, maybe in just a couple of minutes, unpack that for us. What the heck happened with OpenAI? You know, OpenAI for listeners who are less in the artificial intelligence or tech world is kind of the, what I would call the premier independent platform for artificial intelligence. They were the ones that launched ChatGPT, made a number of breakthroughs in what are called large language models, which is what ChatGPT is predicated on. They were co-founded actually by Elon Musk and Sam Altman and a few other luminaries in the space, but now it's more under control of Altman. And they were recently kind of quasi-purchased by Microsoft, although the deal came with some strings that made it not quite an outright purchase is the way that I understood it. But then suddenly this massive successful platform that had grown more rapidly than almost any tech company in the world in a weird like Twitter announcement fired its CEO and co-founder. Uh, Jake, what happened there? Yeah, so the short versions we still don't quite know, although I think we're normalizing around some explanation. And I would offer up some of the, the most drama that we've seen around there has been the result of this experiment in structure, right? Where the company was actually owned by a nonprofit and there was a for-profit subsidiary within that. So investors went into the for-profit part of it and yet the governance was at the nonprofit side at that level. And the reason the nonprofit was there, maybe to step back and explain the difference between generalized artificial intelligence and more localized. And the idea of localized artificial intelligence is that you can have a very specific problem. Maybe it's reviewing legal docs, something like that. You can train a model. It can do that very, very well. But this idea of generalized artificial intelligence is much more the Terminator-esque Skynet, right? Something that passes the Turing test, which is this idea that if you're talking with this AI and you can't tell whether it's a human or not, well, it's past a certain threshold. And eventually you get this generalized, almost consciousness, some people might say. And so the nonprofit was set up to say, well, that would be a big problem, right? If you get that, then all, all of a sudden, maybe you do have a Skynet type of outcome. You have all kinds of issues with what it can do with encryption and cryptography. I mean, across the board, it gets to be pretty risky. So the nonprofit was set up to say, if we see that happening, then let's push the abort button. Right. And so what most analysts would say is that Sam Altman was going and negotiating deals in the Middle East for chipsets that would be able to advance the company in that direction, that there was a lot that wasn't being run by the board as OpenAI got closer and closer to that. And so the board got scared and said, OK, we've got to stop this. And so at the core, what it was is there was a mission that had nothing to do with fiduciary duty around shareholder value. And so you had the for profit and the nonprofit with totally different incentives. And so in some ways, it was the most rational thing in the world, given the structure. But of course, when that happened, all of a sudden you had more than 90% of the open AI team members that said, well, if Sam doesn't come back, we're gone. Sam Altman joined Microsoft for two or three hours, right? He, he threatened to recruit all the different developers out there. So the board got together and said, well, hey, we've got to do something about this. A lot of pressure from Microsoft and other investors. And so everything three or four days later were completely reversed, with the exception that the board was replaced. And so there's still investigations ongoing into what exactly tipped it off. But I think that's what a lot of the analysts would say was at the crux of it is this disincentive, this misaligned incentives with the nonprofit and for-profit. And I suspect we won't see that structure being used anytime real soon. And it was a weird board, right? I mean, the independent board members seemed almost grossly inadequate to a $70 billion platform. I mean, these were not people who seemed to have 
let's call it advanced careers in the space or had deep experience serving on boards. I mean, it was just an odd board construction that I haven't seen explained well either. So yeah, Jake, I think you're probably right. People are going to pay attention to boards a little bit more now. They're going to pay attention to governance and operating structure. And it, you know, as we were going through it, I thought, gosh, this is going to be the best HBS case study for like the governance class in history, right? It just <laughs> indicates all the problems with these things. Yeah. If we camp out on artificial intelligence as a topic for a minute, and Ross, maybe you want to jump in. It is what everyone's talking about right now. It reminds me a few years ago when blockchain was kind of a part of everything. You know, you'd get a coffee company that added blockchain to its title and would spike 100% in public markets or whatever because, because of the name. Everybody's talking about artificial intelligence. Everybody's trying to add it to what they're doing. How do you think about it, Ross? Is it kind of overblown at the moment? Is it kind of properly evaluated in markets? Is it underestimated? What's your view on the AI marketplace right now? I'm pretty old, John. So <laughs> my view of it is very slow. And uh, it is kind of like Bitcoin or blockchain. I would rather give it to experts to figure it out than me. I am suspicious of the actual value of that. It might be just a tad overblown in the hope that it can uh you know, transform so many businesses. It might a few, kind of like Wi-Fi or the internet, like it changed the world, but it wasn't very investable. So I'm not yeah. quite sure. It might change the world, but it might be really hard to make money directly off of AI. I just don't know yet. And so we've not really spent time chasing the theme. Sure, it excites me in certain areas, but I think that the natural cynic comes up in me, John, when I, when everybody's thinking one thing, it just always makes me slow down a bit. <laughs> I'm shocked to hear Ross is a cynic and he has occasionally accused me of superficial intelligence, but never artificial intelligence. Uh, Jake Thompson, you're living in this world quite a lot. And I know you've actually evaluated some early stage deals in the artificial intelligence space. How are you thinking about it? What do you think of its presence in markets right now? Yeah, I think for now it's overblown in the short term, right? Like anything we often overestimate in the short term, underestimate in the long term. I think that's probably the case. This truly is, I believe, the next platform shift. And so I agree with Ross, right? If you had the advent of the PC of being a very notable, more recent platform shift as we start using word processors and PCs and the rest, then you get to the internet age, all the impacts that had on business and society, even mobile connectivity. And now I'd say this is the next big one. And if you actually look at some of the spend for those technologies along the way, you see these economic multipliers, right? Where in the late 20th century, if you looked at the revenue of the big guys, right? Back then it was Microsoft and Dell and IBM. For every $1 of their revenue, it tended to lead to about $10 of GDP in the economy more broadly. So the idea is because people are consuming those goods, they're becoming more productive. There's a lot of value that is created out in the industry. So I think we'll see that with artificial intelligence. And you know, the estimates are something like $100 billion of revenue from AI companies in 2025. So assuming there's a similar kind of relationship and there's a 10X, and that's a trillion dollars worth of GDP because of productivity gains that would happen, which is, which is 4 or 5% of our national GDP. So if you just break that down per year, I mean, the potential, right, on this is the bull case, to have 2 2.5% additional growth per year because of productivity gains from something like AI. But to Ross's point, it's one thing 
to spur that in the economy. It's another to capture those gains. I think a lot of them will be from the big tech companies, right? What we're seeing in the marketplace is a whole lot of wrappers around large language models, meaning that doesn't take a whole lot to build a company, but you use the guts of what OpenAI and others have done. Those are less interesting, right? When there's a lot of proprietary data and company coming from that, that gets much more interesting. So there's still so much chaos and so much friction. We're watching it closely. We think there'll be a lot of opportunity, but I agree with Ross, it's hard to tell where exactly that will go. But what we are seeing are more and more tools that are making folks 10, 20, 30% more efficient, whether it's around content creation or creating images, reviewing legal documents, even planning events, right? There's software now that will do that all for you in 10% of the time. I think we'll see more and more of that that will be introduced into the day-to-day, first in tech, but then more broadly. So we're bullish on it longer term. In the short term, it sure does feel like there's a whole lot of hype. Yeah, John, something to watch on too is AI requires a lot of energy. Yes. It can't be interrupted. And so there is some interest in small nuclear reactors that are being built that don't rely on the grid. You can basically supply your own grid. And so companies like Microsoft and others are certainly beginning to move that direction, which is interesting to us, that there could be this onpouring of new energy that's outside the grid for industry especially made for not just Bitcoin and that, but also for AI. So interesting to watch. Well, what I found really interesting on that front, Ross, was, and maybe remembering the numbers slightly off, but I think I saw a report that Microsoft was intending to invest something like $50 billion in infrastructure to support artificial intelligence, which to my knowledge was the biggest tech infrastructure investment I'd seen announced over the last 12 or 18 months other than chip re-onshoring, some of the stuff that Intel and associated organizations are doing to build chip factories here rather than leaving all the exposure in Taiwan. And I do think that says something to Jake's point about at least the medium-term reality of this, right? I don't think you'd see a company as adept as Microsoft investing that kind of money in physical infrastructure without some hope that this is a transformative technology in the medium term. And I do think, Ross, from my perspective, some of the most interesting investment opportunities are likely to be the ancillary ones that surround this ecosystem, where if you can find those spots, whether it be compartmentalized energy, uh, real estate related to the physical infrastructure of this, the engineering of that you know, in companies, uh, there could be some really, really interesting opportunities as these outlays of tens of billions of dollars happen with people chasing the underlying technology and I wouldn't be surprised if there are more NVIDIA style, you know, runs and companies that happen into an ancillary component of this artificial intelligence ecosystem. Yeah, the pickaxes and shovels, I think this is the time to be looking for those because those I don't think are quite as highly valued. Whereas to your guys' point, anytime that somebody comes and makes a pitch, you just add AI to it, right? And of course, the valuation expectations are, are so much higher. Yeah, this is the FDI AI podcast now. We're expecting to quintuple uh, listeners. Uh, tomorrow. Oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not done yet, John. <laughs> I think another area to keep an eye on that excites us, we're, we've been big bulls on biotech and have been really right and then really wrong the last couple of years. Yeah. But we do think that the convergence of technology and AI on medicine to affect human flourishing and the curing of diseases, that could really speed things up. And it's, it's interesting to watch. I, I'm hopeful that AI, rather than just you know, making my Wikipedia page easier to read will actually bring some, you know, 
curing of disease, which would be pretty cool. He had Finney Caravalla on earlier this year, actually. And that was one of the things he highlighted was he thought we were currently understating the potential impact in medicine because all the focus had been on these large language models that are easy to kind of understand. Oh, it can take a test, you know, an AP exam. It can, you can give it a task to write an essay and it can do that. And that's kind of a cool parlor trick. It has some substantive uses, but we haven't even begun to scratch the surface on these truly substantive uses in healthcare and energy and other places. I'd love to stay on this topic, but uh, it sounds like we need to do an artificial intelligence oriented podcast. Although it was, I would argue it was probably the biggest theme of the year in many ways in markets, even though nobody has quite a grasp on how to handle it. If I back all the way up, Ross, you started to touch on this and maybe you could kick us off. This year, we're coming out of two of the most interesting macroeconomic years in recent US history, right? A combination of inflation, something that always looked on the precipice of recession and never quite tipped there, at least in the United States, a relatively late and inept Fed response followed by a pretty solid Fed response, and then you know volatile valuations in markets as a result of that. Give us your outlook for the U.S. economy and the global economy in 2024 as it relates to inflation and recession, which are the two things that people keep focusing on. Uh, well, the answer is I don't know. The way that I like to tell it is that economists, market strategists that try to guess on these short-term kind of, th- I mean, 12 months is nothing, right? And I compare them to weather forecasters and allocators, actual people on the ground that have to allocate assets. I compare them to farmers. Like a farmer who listens to a weather forecast still has to prepare for everything that could happen. Uh, And so even if I said, well, I think inflation's dead, the Fed's going to cut, recession will be a soft landing, it's going to be great next year. For people to invest in that direction would be silly because we just don't know. You have to prepare for lots of different outcomes. And uh, I would highly recommend people to go back and watch Jamie Dimon's interview at the Dealbook Conference, the New York Times Dealbook Conference, just a week or so ago. Very insightful, very interesting Asked him about a soft landing in inflation. He just said, I don't know. But he's suspicious when everybody's in agreement that maybe we're going to be wrong. And that he, as running a bank like that, he still has to prepare for every possible outcome. And so I would just be cautious about listening this time of year to all these outlooks and pinpoint accuracy, detailed things about it. S&P is going to finish at 49.52 next year. Like, okay, but we still have to prepare for every single outcome. And uh, do you, I'll ask you a pointed question. The talk of the day, as you mentioned earlier, is whether the Fed will actually start decreasing rates, will reverse course after one of the steepest periods of rate increases in recent memory, which has been cataclysmic for parts of the real estate industry, you know, for valuations in certain areas. Do you have any perspective on whether you do think the Fed will likely begin to decrease rates, or do you think it's too soon to tell even for them? My gut tells me they will not, and that the supply demand of U.S. Treasuries is really weak right now. So the demand side is awful, and it really won't matter if that holds that rates will have to go higher because the price will go down because they won't get bid for it. And I'm just a little nervous that 
even though we think the Fed might cut next year, we could actually see rates go higher. Um, the yield curve's still inverted. It's still messed up. It's been inverted for, I don't know, two years, which is unprecedented. And certainly we're not bond investors, at least until the yield curve normalizes. We're just going to wait it out. I don't know if I answered your question, but we're waiting on bonds until we see. And we might be really wrong, John, like badly wrong. But we just would rather see a normalized yield curve before we invest in a 10-year bond. Jake, what are you seeing on your side? How do you think about inflation and recession, especially within private markets where you tend to operate? What's been the impact in 2023? And what are you anticipating for the year ahead? Yeah, the impact in 2023, as you can imagine, in venture capital, rates go up and uh, risky asset, the demand goes way down. And we see that in funds that are raising, it gets much harder, right? Good funds right now are typically raising about 30% of their targets, right? And that's been a challenge. I think looking into 2024, what some of the challenge or, or what some of the worry is that we're seeing is that inflation is gradually coming down. So much of it is related to wages now, which tend to be stickier. And yet Powell is very aggressive in saying we're not doing anything until it gets down to two. And yet you see a lot of the rest of the economy that is probably getting closer and closer to hitting a little bit of a wall, right? I even think about debt. Uh, debt is such an important topic, of course, with rates. And you look at consumer side, credit card debt, consumer debt, right? That ticked up by 5% year over year, right? A lot of that is variable rates. That's just going up. A lot of businesses are refinancing their business debt. The federal government, right? We're going to probably run a $2 trillion deficit next year. Uh, another five to seven will be refinanced at much higher rates. But at some point, some of this starts to break the system. Not to mention, speaking of the federal government, if you strip out a lot of the employment related to the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, it looks like private employment is actually starting to contract a little bit. And the Fed is notoriously relying on lagged indicators, right? It's a lot of stuff that's backward looking. So there's one potential future, one hypothesis that would say Powell and the Fed will wait until inflation comes down. The rest of the economy will break a bit before then. There'll be a reaction to reducing rates fairly quickly, similar to what we saw in eras like 1981, 2001, where it comes down quickly and yet you don't see the impact of that in the markets for six to nine to 12 months, the real economy a little bit later. And so I'm probably a little less bullish on the economy in general, because I think there are going to be some of those challenges we have to try to navigate. And yet we've seen a tale of two cities the last few years, right? 2022 and early 2023, there was a major recession in tech, but the rest of the economy did pretty well. I think we may see a bit of a reversal where technology, as we've seen in the latter part of 2023 by the Magnificent Seven and some of these new baskets really driving some returns. And yet much of the real economy, much of traditional sectors may start to stumble a little bit. But I suspect overall, we don't dip into recession. But again, that's relying on some of the thinking that Ross has rightly pointed out and saying, hey, here's a point estimate that is absolutely going to happen. But those are the things that I'm kind of worried about, some of the things that we're thinking about on the private market side. And as we all know, the Fed is an independent entity, but the Very pressures in an election year to not dramatically increase unemployment could be quite high. And so it'll be interesting to see, particularly in an election year, if they are willing to stay as aggressive as they've been even at the cost of real economic impact, Jake, which is, I think was what you were speaking to, particularly as CPI does seem to be declining. And the interesting thing about it is it's always a lagging indicator, right? You tend to overshoot on both sides. Either you act too late and you stop too slowly, right? 
And so I'm actually kind of where you are, Ross. I bet they take a wait and see for a period of time. I doubt they'll increase. I doubt they'll decrease too quickly. But no one knows right now. It's probably the biggest area of speculation in markets. One thing I wanted to touch on related to that, but kind of separate is in the private markets, a lot of our listeners invest in private equity, venture capital, real estate, private credit. This has been, on one hand, one of the most difficult valuation environments in a while, uh, precisely for what you indicated, Jake. We've got interest rates rising, taking on debt for a company or real estate development is more costly than ever, uh, mortgage rates are higher, you know, all those sorts of things. On the other hand, it's also been one of the most difficult fundraising environments for alternative asset managers in my career, probably. I mean, just people being cautious about their allocations to things like venture and private equity, and for a period of time acting on the denominator effect, which is when public markets have declined, they're over-allocated to private markets, so they have to kind of stop allocating to private markets. That wore off, I think, over the last year, and yet people have stayed conservative. Ross, you're in the world dealing with institutional allocators that are quite sophisticated every day. You all advise people like that. What do you see ahead? Is that difficult fundraising environment in alternative asset management thawing? Do you think that will continue into 2024? Or do you think this is a time when we see a lot of institutions and sophisticated investors getting money back into the private markets? Well, I mean, price usually solves those problems, right? And so as valuations come down in the private markets, or at least perceived valuation, interest will rise. It will. And I think that, you know, I don't know if part of the issue has been that it's been easy to invest in the capital markets. If we get more trouble, maybe we'll get a swing back. I don't think so. I just think that price will cure that eventually, and that uh, money will flow back into venture and to private equity just because valuations will be too attractive and money will just flow back that direction. It's just a natural flow of any market, really. But I think it did get ahead of itself, get overfunded, and it just self-corrects. But I don't think it's going anywhere. I don't think it's going to be much longer before we start to see better inflows. Yep. Jake, what are you seeing? I'd agree with that. I think you have the prices that are coming down, but the fundamentals do seem to be holding steady. Right? It felt a little bit like a forest fire over the last couple of years, which is hard at the time, but it's healthy for the forest. And you start seeing green shoots popping up after that. And I think we, we see a lot of that in the private markets, whether it's some of the tech and more generally having a lot of the layoffs that are bottoming out, right? The ones you see today are a little bit more specific to the company or because of the AI impacts of just being more efficient, right? But they tend to bottom out. Valuations are slightly ticking up, right? They're more steady, but coming up just a tiny bit. Uh, you start to see some IPOs that were lackluster back in September, and yet they generated $3 billion worth of market cap since then. So they're still doing okay and had some exits for folks. So as more and more of that happens, enterprise spending is probably the other one where if you look at indicators like spend on cloud infrastructure, right? So any technology company is generally going to use an AWS or a Microsoft Azure or others, right? That has bottomed out and it's starting to tick back up too. So enterprise spending is likely going up. So a lot of these seem to say that green shoots are starting to grow. And uh, you know, we often say the green shoots are encouraging, yet they can be stamped out. So it's anybody's guess. Uh, and yet we're optimistic that the fundamentals will be increasing. Prices are in a good place. And so especially as you have institutional money, right, as they're trying to maintain their different allocations to different asset classes, 
that even if that starts, the price is going back up, folks will be jumping back in. Now, whether that's six months or two years, we're not quite sure. And a problem for a lot of institutions is they haven't been getting distributions in two years, right? So typically you're selling off venture and private equity positions at a pretty good clip, but right now funds are holding longer because the environment has been poor. That inevitably will have to, I mean, people have to sell their positions at some point that will kick in. I suspect 2024 is gonna be a better fundraising environment in private markets, certainly. And Jake, I know we've talked about the data on this. I suspect it will be a pretty good vintage. Typically when you come out of these difficult economic environments like this where valuations have declined, the vintage of private investing immediately following that valuation decline and the economic difficulty is pretty good. And I would guess that will be the case in private equity and venture where I feel like valuations have come back to earth. I still don't have a good read on real estate. It feels like you have to think about that more subsector by subsector, you know, where I'm still quite nervous about office, for example, and that we haven't seen a real correction there. It feels like multifamily housing has corrected and even single family housing is mostly corrected just because there's such a shortage. But I think that one is probably a bit more nuanced than venture and private equity, where it feels like people have now adjusted to this rate environment and are starting to actually move positions, IPO companies again, those sorts of things. Um, Ross, are you seeing the same thing from a valuation point of view? Like, do you think things are getting a bit more attractive right now in the private markets? And and maybe specifically on real estate, are, are you guys looking at that area pretty closely right now? We're looking at it, but we're not going there. I don't think, especially commercial office space, like you said, I think it's really scary. And that's not just because maybe we have a recession coming, but just the overall change in lifestyle. And I'm not sure that's going away anytime soon. I'm in my home right now, (laughs) working from my office in my home. And I think the need for huge footprints is fading. And I think once companies get used to not spending that much money, they're not going to. And uh, yeah, I would be nervous about that part. But I think I agree. Multifamily looks really good. And we're looking in different areas, especially on the faith side. Uh, We think there's lots of opportunities to change lives in real estate. So if we can do it that way, yes. But in general, I think that office is still an area that's not corrected maybe the way it's going to. I just, I wouldn't want to be sitting on a large building in a large city right now. It would make me very nervous. You want to camp out on that residential faith driven component for a minute, Ross, because I do think this is an exciting area. Maybe just two or three minutes on what you're seeing there, what you're most excited about in terms of the way managers are incorporating faith into the developments the innovations and the way those are delivered. I think real estate can be one of the most redemptive investing areas uh, because you're so directly touching the lives of people every single day in the environments in which they live. But say more about what you're seeing and why that's exciting to you right now. Well, even the movement in refugee housing is just really exciting in the way that you can, for profit, invest in multifamily that attracts refugees in certain cities that Louisville and other cities like that, that draw a lot of people in. And then they incorporate the equivalent of a house mother or a den mother at each facility that checks in on people that are in a new culture that have no idea even how to get to a grocery store or find a doctor or, you know, figure out how to go to school, even like they're kind of lost and they need help and building those relationships and owning that sort of real estate is interesting to us. 
Yeah, apartment life is another one that's well established, but a really good way for even young professionals that move into an apartment. Maybe it's their first professional job. They move into a city and they just they don't really know anybody. They're sort of lost. They know people at work, but that's about it. They don't really have a social life. And to have somebody come alongside them and befriend them and then ultimately share the gospel with them is really exciting to us to be able to converge those two things in one investment. We're always looking for ways to do that. I want to ask one more question that's kind of more market-oriented and then turn back to this faith-driven component, which both of you are so knowledgeable of. And Jake, I'll start with you, even though nominally my question is kind of outside of your domain area, but I think it touches on it. Ross Never stopped the, me before, John. Yeah, I know you're very comfortable commenting. Artificial on intelligence, it's back. Artificial intelligence. And so public markets this year, the story has been at least through October or so, the run of mega caps, right? It was the large, dominantly technology-oriented players like Tesla, Facebook, Google, Amazon, that drove almost all of public markets returns. If you, I think a couple months ago, I looked at it and if you stripped out those top 10 tech names or so, you would have been negative in the S&P for the year rather than positive, and they were driving returns. That appears to have softened a little bit in November and December, from what I can tell. There's been a reversion to the mean where small caps and mid caps have been a bit undervalued. The mega caps have seemed to slow a bit, at least in some circumstances. Jake, maybe starting with you, especially from the tech perspective, any reason you think there's been such a run in these largest technology players? And do you see a reversion to the mean now where you feel like they've got to come back to earth and that some of the smaller players actually have an opportunity to accelerate now? Or do you think this is structural, like the big tech players just have such a structural advantage that they're destined to segregate themselves from the rest of the market. What do you think when you look at how those have moved in public markets? Yeah, I, I think two things are going on with the, the big tech companies. One is they've done a very, very good job of cost cutting, right? These are high operating leverage types of companies where you're able to cut some things without necessarily sacrificing your core business. And a lot of those Magnificent Seven companies, for instance, have done that very effectively. And then you're just printing cash. So I think that was happening. They're unique in being the types of companies they are to be able to have that kind of outcome. But two, if you look at the names, I mean, NVIDIA is in there, right? You mentioned them earlier. That is squarely a graphical processing unit play, right? That's the core horsepower behind a lot of artificial intelligence. And a lot of the other ones, whether it's it's Meta or Microsoft or others, have to do with the artificial intelligence play that I think people are excited about. So I do think it's more thematic of what investors are interested in. Right, the average return of tech tends to be about 16% a year versus 6% for the market. And so I think there was some reversion of the mean when everything tanked a whole lot, starting to come back. But the ones that are coming back the most are being driven by that cost cutting and by some of the trends in what people are excited about right now. Ross, are you guys getting more optimistic that small and mid caps or frankly, any stocks other than these kind of 10 or 20 largest technology names are going to be able to accelerate? Or do you think this trend is going to continue? Well, with Charlie Munger's passing, it was just really interesting to read through and remember the effect he had on Warren Buffett. And that was, you know, Buffett's approach was the cigar butt, deep value, there's a price for everything. And I think Munger came along inside and taught him that quality matters. The right price is good, but it has to be a high quality company. And I do think that 
I'm a little worried about large tech just because of the price. It doesn't mean they're not good companies. It doesn't mean Apple won't do really well, but Apple is, I don't know, 30 times earnings and it's growing at 5%. I mean, at some point, those things have to match. Same with Microsoft. It's it's a great company, but it's 36 or 37 times. And it's, I don't know what the growth rate is, Jake. Is it 10? It might be 10. Uh, so, I mean, I think that just like private and venture, price matters. And yes, money will come back to small and mid caps. And I think now is a really good time to to shop there, but I wouldn't do it just on price. I think back to Munger, if you can find high quality, small and mid cap companies, they're probably very cheap right now because all the money's going to NVIDIA and Microsoft and, and Apple and Meta. And so I think that there's going to be lots of values, lots of good money made in small and mid cap over the next three to five years, certainly. I want to conclude the program with two questions. We're going to turn to the last one in a moment, which is just uh, what the Christmas season means to you. We usually end the program by asking people what they're learning through scripture. I wanna mix that up a bit today as Christmas approaches and just ask kind of what does Christmas mean to you? Before we do that, both of you have been leaders in faith-driven investing for quite some time now. Despite his youthful appearance, Jake Thompson was an early mover in the space, has been a real pioneer in the venture side of the business, as well as just helping the full ecosystem flourish. My observation, perhaps one lived within this bubble, is that faith-driven investing seems to be kind of peeking into the mainstream right now, that it's starting to become more of a topic uh, that's well-known through the industry, more people are getting into it, more uh, managers are attempting to manage things in a faith-driven way. What are your observations right now about the mainstreaming of faith-driven investing, Jake? And what's the next frontier in your mind? I do think there's a, a tip of the spear that sure feels like it's in the season. And I'd say the most exciting time to be a part of something like this because it's been professionalized in a lot of ways and yet isn't totally mainstream yet. And that's a really interesting place to be as it's growing. And yeah, to your point, a lot more managers that have been at household name VCs or investment banks, just very excellent people are getting into it and leading from a faith driven perspective. You have some more and more public vehicles that are out there that are spreading the word on how to be able to do this in a faith-driven way that you know, everyday people, everyday retail investors can be a part of as well. And uh, everywhere you look, everything's moving in that direction. Even a lot of the more secular areas, whether they're banks or the impact investing or whatever, now have faith groups, not because they're necessarily faith-driven, but because they recognize this is an emerging asset class. And that I think is very, very interesting. But now it's incumbent upon everybody in this space to be able to show, well, now that we're X number of years in, right? And that's, you can measure that as several hundred years, right? By some measures or, yeah, kind of six, seven, eight years by other measures. And it's getting to the point where the most recent iteration really has to show the proofs in the pudding. Uh, the performances has to be there. The excellence has to be there. It's more than just the sizzle, right? It's going to be gauged on the stake, so to speak. So it's like a, a venture stage company where there's a lot of hype, a lot of excitement. That's a good thing, but you need to be able to translate that into the fundamentals. And we're at the exciting space that we're starting to show that as an industry, as a sector, more folks are coming in there. So I think there's a lot of a lot of tailwinds going into the space that I think is are really interesting. Very, very small. So it's still people that are getting into it today are still going to be the pioneers in 10, 20 years for sure. 
Ross, what are you seeing? I mean, you've been around this industry about as long as anyone at this point. I mean, what are you seeing right now? Are you encouraged by what's happening in the marketplace right now? And what's I'm, the next frontier? I, yeah, well, I'm the oldest in my firm by 20 years. And uh, I think that the generation behind me has a great desire to change the world. And I think that the ESG movement overplayed its hand. I think the pendulum swung way too far. And I think some people are seeing that and reacting to that and wondering what else they can do. And we talked about Sam Altman and the governance issue there. There's probably some attachment to ESG there. And I think that we're waking up to the fact that that didn't change the world quite the way we wanted to change the world. And I think that there's so much talent coming in our direction. It's so exciting to see. And the conversations I have with even compared to five years ago with faith-driven organizations is way easier now. It was conceptual five years ago. Now it's reality. And now it's, as Jake said, now I think we are seeing quality. It's rising and we are producing returns every bit as good as the secular world gets while taking this concentrated capital and slowly changing the world. And it's, it's really exciting. So Love it. And today, instead of concluding with scripture, I'm going to I'm gonna go off script. I think Henry would be okay with that. Henry told me when I took on this podcast. Henry doesn't that, have a script. No, Henry does not. But he said, John, you always got to end with the scripture thing because it's so important. And I agree that's important. But given the season, I thought we'd take a pass on that and you can use scripture or not. But Jake, obviously, the Christmas season is one that's just so meaningful to people of faith, to people of Christian faith. What does it mean to you? How do you think about this season as it approaches? You know, it becomes meaningful in a different way now that we have young kids, right? We've got kids that are at that age where there's just so much wonder to the season, right? And and it's appropriate wonder. It's sweet and it's innocent. And there's a certain part of me that it's pretty easy to think ahead and like, man, all that wonder you have is going to be crushed by the world, right? That's just part of growing up. And yet, right, what Christmas represents is that we don't just commit ourselves to some philosophy or some way of living. We commit ourselves to this narrative that God has authored. That there's a beginning of, of what he did and what he is doing. And there's an end that he's going to come back and make all things new and we'll be resurrected and worship and work and be together on a new redeemed set right earth. I think he will look at us much like I look at my kids without the bittersweet sadness of what might come. Whereas we have a wonder of everything that he sets right. And Christmas is for us, for me, it's, it's a reminder of his role in that story and the promise of him coming and making that right. And but we do talk a lot in our family because our kids are going through something in their church and school that Zephaniah 317 that says, the Lord, your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He'll take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I think this is an area or a time of the year where we're just stepping back thinking, man, God loves us so much. You can't help but just bust out in song. That's just the carols and all the rest. That comes together in a really poignant way for me and for my family. Awesome word. Ross, you want to close us out with your thoughts? Yeah, I think that just the miracle that God was made into flesh, that he came to us, that we don't have to go to him. Just that simple fact is just remarkable. And then just reflecting, I always reflect on Luke 2 and just the angels that tell us to not to fear. Fear not, you know, they bring good news of great joy. And, you know, that's enough for me that he came down to us, that we don't have to strive to get to him he's right here he came here it's a great reminder hallelujah hallelujah well look ross Rogensack, oak city consulting jake thompson sovereign's capital so grateful to you all being on today 
And to all of our listeners, a Merry Christmas. We hope this is an amazing season of flourishing for you all. We hope that you can reflect on the true meaning of the season, on the sacrifice that God made for us, on the just the miracle of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and on the hope that this represents for mankind. And we will see you in the new year with another Faith Driven Investor podcast. Take care. Amen. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. We are grateful for the opportunity to serve this community and see listeners come in from more than 100 countries. Faith-driven investing can be a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. The best way to stay connected is to join a group study with other investors looking to get the same answers to questions you have and find great community as they do so. There's no cost, no catch. In person or online, you can meet an hour a week with other peers from your backyard or the other side of the world. You can also stay connected by signing up for our monthly newsletter at faithdriveninvesting.org. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of many of our friends. Executive producer Justin Foreman, intro mixed and arranged by Summer Dregs, audio and editing by Richard Barley. Our theme song is Sweet Ever After by Ellie Holcomb. 